And this is what the pandemic basically took away from us, the illusion of having everything under control. So we were experiencing how fragile this all is around us. And this is terrifying. This is super terrifying, like in the beginning. And it takes a while to get used to that. Why should companies celebrate mistakes? And what can they do to make their employees more resilient? How does our brain react when we step out of our comfort zone? And how can we use the future to create our present? Today I'm talking to Rike Petzold, an uncertainty expert who supports companies and managers on their way to deal with the unknown. But isn't it a paradox to be an expert for not knowing? This podcast brings you stories from and about people who stepped into the unknown. Stories about fear, uncertainty, the illusion of security or... I don't know. Let's see what it will be about. My name is Katarina Bayer and I will host you on this journey into the unknown. expression that life happens and whenever I look around I see that people want to control life they want to control the present they want to control the future because it gives them a feeling of security can we actually control or why do we try it it's very very difficult to control so it's the things you can control they're very limited um, the thing is, we don't really learn how to create security from, from inside out. So we try to control everything in the outside or on the outside. And um, that gives us the illusion of control. But it's not really, it's really an illusion. You don't have that much under control, like very little. So is there any possibility that I can control something or is it always an illusion? Well, you can control very little things, like around you, yes. But the thing with complexity is, and life is complex, and dynamic systems are always complex, is that there's always so many factors in the equation that are unknown that you can't really predict what's going to happen. And that's the problem. So you could maybe potentially control very little things in the future because the future, the very near future at least, uh, is, a, is a result, is a product from the recent past. So yes, a little bit. But as soon as there are other factors coming in, it's impossible to control. It's impossible to predict. So that we already started to talk about the topic of uncertainty before we dive deeper. Can you tell me what made you dedicate yourself to insecurity, uncertainty and not knowing? This topic sort of has always been with me in a way. 
And um, I've, I've tried to find an explanation and there's possibly an explanation, but it doesn't really matter anyway. So um, I was born without a thyroid and my parents at the time didn't really know how I was going to turn out. If I would be able to go to a like normal school and if I'd grow up normally. And so I, the first couple of years of my life, I sort of grew up in this vacuum, this expectation-free vacuum. And maybe it was that, maybe it was something else. So I really don't know. But I, I just remember that I was always so drawn to not knowing. I was always so drawn to just doing stuff without knowing the outcome, just moving to different countries, just um, doing activities I'd never done before, always like to throw myself into stuff that I hadn't experienced previously. And I was like... A junkie, certainly junkie. I was so obsessed with this thrill, this feeling of wow. I don't know. Everything is open. Everything can happen. But I didn't realize. I hadn't realized at the time, of course, because for for me that was normal. That was all normal. Um, I was only a little bit irritated sometimes when people came up to me and asked me how I could do that. Um, that they thought that was very courageous, but I didn't feel very courageous I did not feel courageous at all because it was so it just came so naturally I didn't really have to overcome fear to do stuff so I think it was only when we started to go sailing with our family after a year or so and it was like a family sailing adventure and everything went wrong and our engine broke down and stuff and um, and then I had this time during um, sitting in the shipyard and waiting for our engine to be repaired. And I had this time to, to think about what I was really interested in. And then that really came to me, like the epiphany that it was all about how to deal with uncertainty. And that I was sort of convinced that if more people would be comfortable with dealing with uncertainty or even would be comfortable with leaning into uncertainty, so many things for so many people would be so much easier. You went with a small child in an Asian country to live there. Can you tell me how this shaped you in being in a surrounding where you actually really don't know because you cannot even write, uh, read the, the signs? I actually could because I, I studied Chinese studies before that. So that was my university <laughs> degree. And that was also where my interest come, came from, like Japanese studies and Chinese studies. So, But still, um, it was always this excitement to move to a different country and to to work the system, you know, to find out how the infrastructure works, to find out where to get stuff, to find out where to get rid of the trash, to find out how to get from A to B. That was always so exciting. And, and what I what I realized after doing it, and I did that a couple of times, that I sort of threw myself into a new culture, a new environment, that it is almost unbearably uncomfortable at the beginning, so yes, there is excitement, but then also um, there's homesickness and there's estrangement and there is this ooh, very uncomfortable feeling of, I don't know what the f is going on. And also, of course, with my son at the time, I felt very responsible and I, I had to like pull myself together and not sort of let him feel and show him that I also felt very uncomfortable. But every time I did that, um, I, I experienced that after a couple of days... Sometimes, sometimes maybe a week, it would become easier and it would feel more comfortable. And um, this 
adaptation curve is what is also very interesting to me in terms of uncertainty, like in any way. If you experience something new, if you go to a new country, if you start a new job, if you move to a different city, in the beginning, if you start something new, you have to adapt. And just that takes a while. And after doing that a couple of times, I just know, I just have this this trust, I just have this faith that it just takes some time and it will always be easier after a while. Let's come back to the first question I had about controlling. When I talked to friends during Corona, they said, you know, everything is so uncertain now. Everything, we don't know what happens. And I said to them, but it was an illusion before that we had security. Of course, maybe it's more on the surface now, but it was always an illusion. Why do you think that for some people security is so important and this is why they want to hold on to something that they know? Well, first of all, um, I completely agree with you that I also that that's sort of my point of view that the the certainty is an illusion has always been an illusion and this pandemic just showed what's been there already and always um, then I think that the feeling of security is important to everyone the thing is just how do I obtain security? How do I get it? Do I get it by trying to control the outside factors, which is virtually impossible in a complex world? Or do I get it from the inside? Can I sort of um, create this feeling of security by developing certain strategies, by having a um, specific attitude or like a result open attitude? There's things like serendipity and, and also emergence. If I can open myself up to that, I could create the security without having everything under control outside. And this is what the pandemic basically took away from us, the illusion of having everything under control. So we are experiencing how fragile this all is around us. And this is terrifying. This is super terrifying, like in the beginning. And it takes a while to get used to that. So you already started to explain what else you can do, not controlling, but there's certain things you can do. And did I understand you right that you said, okay, the the surrounding is so complex that of course we cannot control it, but there's little things in myself, my attitude and the way I deal with things that give me security and trust. Can you give me some concrete examples what you tell other people what they could do in their lives to feel more um, stable and secure. So one of the things that are very important for the attitude that you have is the tolerance for mistakes and the tolerance for errors, like to really celebrate your mistakes. And this is something that when, when kids enter school here, they are completely deprived of that, like from first grade. So kids learn how to speak and how to walk just by try and error. And they get into school and they are sort of literally punished when they make mistakes, like with the, the red pen, the red marker. And this is really a shame because kids initially, like all people know how to learn stuff by making mistakes and learning from mistakes. Like nature is built on that. And we try to eliminate mistakes. And if we try to eliminate mistakes, we make ourselves very, very fragile because if anything happens, we're not prepared for it. So one of the things is really celebrate mistakes also for companies is not to punish them, not to sanction them. And we have a very 
strong culture against mistakes. Like here in the West, we have the guilt thing. And in the East, there's a lot of shame connected with mistakes. Um, another thing is to be as open as possible for different outcomes. So um, there is a management theory or like a what's it called like decision making theory it's called effectuation and in effectuation you have like principles and one of the principles is the principle lemonade so it's the if life gives you lemonades lemons make lemonade and the idea behind that is if something happens that's not planned instead of being angry about it or frustrated or disappointed take it like literally take it in your hand and look at it and try to find something that is maybe positive in that. So not only have this this view that, oh dear, this is not, this, that didn't go as planned, that went completely wrong. Um, it's like a huge screw up. So instead look at it and if maybe there's something inside that experience that teaches you something, that maybe there's an experience in it that can help you. Maybe there's something else in it. So that's one of the things, yeah. When you said, okay, um, let's have a celebration of errors or mistakes. So you accompany companies and you consult them. And I imagine you work in a company, you make a big mistake, you lose a customer, or there's really a lot of money involved. And then you come and say, you know, create a culture of embracing errors. Can you give us examples how companies can really install such a culture? And is there like a limit? It goes until 100,000 euros and then we don't celebrate it anymore. How, how can we live it really in a, in a company? And that's a very interesting question because the thing is, if we suppress mistakes for a while, then big mistakes happen. And that's the concept also of anti-fragility. So um, anti-fragility says that not only... Are you not um, going to break if you make a mistake, but you're going to grow from mistakes or you're going to grow from from disturbances or disruptions? So if you foster a culture of anti-fragility, meaning like to celebrate the little mistakes all the time and to allow the system to, um, and that's the thing, your, your company also, the same as nature, is a system, it's a living system, it's like an organic system and if you allow the system to become more and more anti-fragile by allowing it to make small mistakes it will be more and more adaptive and then you basically you, you actually prevent them from making the big mistakes and you can see this in the economy like the the financial crisis 2008 it was the same thing you are sort of trying to erase mistakes before that And that makes the whole system fra super fragile. And what then happens is if there's one thing, one disruption, the whole thing crashes. But instead, if you allow this whole system, like in nature, to make smaller mistakes and to learn from them, then you prevent these big mistakes from happening. So that means, in other words, when you go in a company, you you show them to slowly adapt uh, like celebrate smaller things so you prepare them and then the idea is that not the big mistakes will happen anymore yes because you make them you make the people learn if, if they really if they are allowed to make the mistakes if they are allowed to make the mistakes they will consequently also be encouraged 
that's the that's the thing you have to encourage them to look at the mistakes and to learn from them and also to share um, what they learned with the others so you really have a culture of making mistakes learning from the mistakes sharing your learnings discussing that and then you make your whole company your whole system a lot more resilient you make it a lot more anti-fragile so you don't have an employee of the month, but a mistake of the month. For example, it could be anything, yeah. Like really, um, also, it's the same with kids also in a school. So if they bring home bad grades, instead of punishing them or sanctioning them by um, giving them more homework, um, you go and celebrate with them. Because, um, and I had, this, I had this one experience when my son was in, I think, the second grade or third grade, he came home and his favorite subject is math and he had this bad grade in math and he was so disappointed he was crying and we were looking at the at the um, paper um and he could explain to me exactly what he did wrong so that was such a huge learning success he he knew what he did wrong he just he, he could explain it to me and so we went to have some ice cream instead so I, I was really happy about that and I was so sad at the same time that the system is punishing these learning experiences and we do that all the time we do this in companies we do this in universities this is not really about learning this is just about doing things right no matter if you do them right on like on purpose or if you just happen to do them right accidentally. So with the celebration, it comes also a reflective state. Also in the companies, this is what I understood. Yes, you have to reflect on them. You make the mistakes, you talk about them, you reflect, you, show your, you share your learnings, and then that's what, make, that's what makes the whole system more resilient. You already introduced this concept of anti-fragility. Can you tell more about these three states, being fragile, being robust, being anti-fragile, and what it really means? So the economist Nicholas um, Taleb, who also wrote, I think it was even before 2008, maybe, The Black Swan, he developed this concept of um, anti-fragility, anti-fragile. Um, this is like an, an art word, say, a word that he created, because he was thinking about what would be the opposite of fragile and he came up with well it's not really robust it's not really stable because if something is stable it's just not going to break but he said in nature you have a phenomenon that's more than not breaking it's becoming better from mistakes becoming better from disruptions and you have this in all kinds of situations where you have organic systems like also muscles if you train muscles basically they they will have little fissures and um, like tiny injuries and by creating these tiny injuries you will make them stronger so with stressing them yes you make them stronger so by experiencing stress you will make the system stronger the whole system I, I always need to be concrete to, to, to uh, understand something. So what I understood, and you tell me if I got it right, let's say I want to be a comedian and this is my real dream and um, I have my first show and it's tw 25 people show up. So I go on stage, I sweat, I cannot say a word and I'm booed off. If I would be fragile, I go home, cuddle and never do it again. If I'm robust, I would say, 
come on, get your things together, do it again or whatever. And I would say like, okay, it makes, makes me really stronger, um, but it makes me also harder. And anti-fragile, as far as I understood, is I know that there will be always people who boo me out. I know that there is humiliation. I know I will be ashamed. I know that there is fear. And there will be always these two or three people that maybe don't like what I'm doing. But I have the drive and I'm doing it and I always go out of my comfort zone. And it actually makes me stronger and more attentive and more, um, I have more possibilities to adapt. Yeah, it's really about embracing these mistakes and really to, to embody that the mistakes that you make make the whole system stronger, make you stronger because they make experience possible that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And this experience is super important. This experience is super precious. And without the experience, um, you're not going to learn, you're not going to grow. So growth needs these little disruptions. Growth needs these little Mm, yeah, stressy situations, uncomfortable situations. And this is also about what we always say, why, why it's so important to leave the comfort zone. So if you're in a comfort zone, everything feels normal and everything gets comfortable. And the minute you step out of your comfort zone, you start to learn. And this has also like physical reasons because the brain builds new synapses, etc. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, I think. But um, this is what you need to grow. And it doesn't feel very comfortable in the beginning. I mean, I, I really understand it in a theoretical way. But now as you, as you consult companies, and I would be a company owner, and I would say, I, I really need some support. Can you give me an example what you did in another company, company that I see if it works for us as well? What would you tell them? Like, how can I implement a culture of failure, a culture of embracing things not happening in a way that I want humiliation and shame how can i do this well you could for example have like a weekly uh, regular um, meeting where you do exactly that you talk about the failures of the week everything that went wrong what did you learn from that what can you share about your failures and i think even that um there is this installation not like in companies but i've read about it, i haven't attended it it's like uh i think it's called fuck up meeting something fuck up nights yeah, fuck we, up we, nights yeah. yes yes that's really about also the same thing so you share with other people where you screwed up and what you learned from it and this is also super encouraging for your colleagues if you do something like that in your company because we are so ashamed of our mistakes you always want to be have this facade of perfection and we are not making any mistakes and we have everything under control and what you really need this is the cultural change is um, in your like colleagues co workers install this attitude of hey it's okay everybody makes mistakes and it's important to make mistakes but that's like the thing of leadership that you need to to show them that you also embrace that and to share your mistakes and to listen to their mistakes and not like punish them the whole time and when you said about before with the comfort zone so the comfort zone always starts when there is a, a change, something suddenly or a crisis when something happens. What happens in the brain, in easy words, <laughs> when there is a sudden change? Like how does our brain react? <laughs> I'm not a neurologist, but as far as I researched and understood is what, what 
happens is that normally if everything is like normal, if we're in a comfort zone, a lot what our brain does is automated. So whatever we do, all the things we do during a, during a day, most of it is automation. If we drive a car and the, the, if we take the different, if it, if you take the same route to our work every morning, if we brush our teeth, all these things are all automated. The minute we do it differently, there is our brain, well, our brain has to do something new. It has to build new connections between the neurons. They are called synapses. They have to, it has to build new synapses or it has to sort of strengthen synapses that are very rarely used. And that takes energy and our brain is super efficient. Our brain already needs like 20% of all our physical energy of our body if it's not doing anything. So, and it's a very smart thing, this brain. So it tries to be efficient, as efficient as possible and not use energy that it's, uh, it, well, it could as well save. So what is happening is that whenever we induce change, whenever we want to do something differently, we have this resistance. It sort of tells us to just no, not do it, don't do it, just do it the way you've always done it. And just that costs more energy than it's needed and and that's why it feels uncomfortable that's we what we experience as this eh feeling when we do something differently and you can try this if you like tomorrow morning or t tonight brush your teeth with the other hand and the first time you do it like most people have this one hand they always brush their teeth some people are comfortable with both so the first time you do it you might experience exactly that it's like ah, oh, now my teeth won't get clean this is really annoying i'm going to stop that and if you overcome that resistance and if you do this for a couple of days you realize that after a while you get used to it and this is because your brain has built these new synapses that it also can use for other things, I guess. Yeah, and you can practice that. It's really a physical thing. So if you want to be be more comfortable with change, and if you want to be to like to 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 make your brain be more open for change and new stuff, you could practice by doing that, by doing things differently, by taking a different route to work in the morning, by brushing your teeth with the other hand, by just making these little changes, physical changes sometimes even, and this is what you're brain what what makes your brain more um so this is what neuroplasticity it makes it more flexible it makes it more like bendable you say that the brain likes routines first and this is why we say no i don't want to do this new thing but in the end the brain only can develop and open for things if if you try to let's say challenges also with little things daily yeah and this is apparently also what research shows what helps if you're like in older age well prevent you develop diseases like dementia and alzheimer like to keep your brain flexible to keep up the neuroplasticity of your brain and always do new things like it can be a little thing it doesn't have to be a big thing just little things I try to translate this now when we come back to uncertainty. So it means there is a quality of facing things that I don't know. What what are these qualities? Like what what is the most striking things for you why you would say to other people, hey, try it out more because you get this, this and that. I love the idea of serendipity. Serendipity means to accidentally 
find something, like luckily find something. Take Columbus, for example. Columbus, well, who um, apparently, allegedly discovered America, he was... He was wrong. He was basically completely entirely off. Like the whole math was off. It was a reason why he did not really get funding before he came to Spain. And it was a very desperate queen who needed a seaway to India and he could convince her. But he was completely off. Like when he would have been, if, if, he, if, um, if there was not, if there wouldn't have been America in his way, they would all have died a very, very terrible death. So... What happened to him was he went into the unknown and he was even completely wrong, but he sort of stumbled across this continent. And this is serendipity. If you don't go into the unknown, you, you, that's, this is not going to happen to you. So if you always try to control something, you could compare this to like being in a tunnel. Yeah, you're in a tunnel and you just, you know, exactly where to go. And you have this this place at the end of the tunnel. And what you don't do if you are inside this tunnel, you don't really look right or left what's also on the way. And that's a little bit similar to um, driving only with the GPS instead of using a map. Because if you have like this road map, you can see, oh, wow, this is an interesting place here. Or look, there's a lake or maybe there's a mountain. Let's check that out. But if you just drive with um, the GPS guiding you, you're not going to see these things. You're not going to find these things. So you have to, sort of you have to, you, you it makes it, a lot more interesting. It makes life a lot more interesting if you are open. Um, so things can happen to you. Serendipity, for example, could happen to you. But when you say things can happen to me, if I would be a, a, a person who doesn't trust a lot, I would say, but if anything can happen, everything can happen. Shouldn't I stay at home and, and, and stay secure? Yeah, that's really, that's the attitude what I was talking about before. So if, if um, anything can happen, anything can happen. Yes, yes. But it's not only bad, that's also very good. It really depends on the way how you look at it. And if you accept that as a universal truth, you can prepare for it. So it's not like preparing for everything that could happen, but it's more like develop a flexibility develop um, your improvisation skills, for example. And I like to compare it with crossing an ocean, like sailing across the ocean on a like a sailboat. You, you don't know, like nowadays, of course, you also have GPS and you have a lot more security like back then with Columbus and Magellan, who didn't really know where they'd end up. But nowadays it's still, the weather is very, like is the controlling factor, wind, weather, waves, and you have this tiny little boat and it might take a week Week. It might, might take two weeks. It might take three weeks, if you don't switch on. If you don't switch on the engine, and really just do it by sailing. So you need sort of to be. You need to be prepared for that. You, on the one hand, need to be prepared in a way that you have enough food, you have enough tools, you have enough spare parts. You you can't just go out to a supermarket if you are a week out of the Atlantic to to get something. So you have to have everything there to be able to survive. But it's a very limited space at the same time. And if you make the boat too full, you will be not like it will be too heavy in the first place and um, you might not think but if there is strong wind the flexibility is gone and this can be very dangerous and you could transport this directly to your life because if you make yourself too inflexible and too heavy by hoarding i don't know 200 packets of toilet paper and i don't know what you're also not very flexible 
But if you always have this in mind, like if anything ha can happen, anything can happen, and what do I need in every situation to be okay, then that's a completely different mindset. Yeah, it's also to, to look at what you have, not only we are so prone to always look at what we don't have, that we forget what we do already have. And if we make this visible, like I have, for example, I might have an apartment that I own even, or I might have a family background, I might have friends. And this is not only about material things. This is not only about the money you have in your bank account. This is also about the connections that you have. This is also about the skills that you have. And you can foster that. You can foster like in good times, you can foster your connections, you can foster your relationships, you can foster your skills, like something you are always, you've always been interested in and that you always deemed not very useful yeah like for me it was always a language teaching because I have this background in Chinese studies and I always knew I didn't want to be a language teacher but over the last couple of years I just kept up always like a couple of hours per week where I teach some languages and this is something I can always do because it's super easy I can do it like I did also a half year ago because also my many of my workshops of course were cancelled so I started just virtually over the internet start teaching Chinese again so I said before if everything can happen everything can happen but you transformed it in a way and said if everything can happen everything is possible is this really your attitude to life Yeah, I guess it is. It was always the way, like when I sort of imagined something, like living in Taiwan, or also now that the thing with the boat, I always thought, yeah, why, why not? This is like my attitude to life is why not? Why not just try it? Why not just do it? It's also the thing with um, why I'd say I'm an agnostic, like I'm not an atheist, but I would not say I believe in God, but it's more like, why not? I, we don't know. We just don't know what's out there. We just don't know what happens after we're dead. Like all these things we don't know. And I'm very, very drawn to the unknown. And um, this is what I what I'd say to everything is why not? Why not try this? Why not do that? Why would it not be possible? You just stay open to whatever happens. Yeah. You consult companies about insecurity, unknown, uncertainty. But when I get an advice from somebody or somebody consults me, this gives me a bit of security. Isn't it a paradox that you consult people that they feel more secure in not being secure? It is a paradox and it was super difficult. And actually, it really just started to really be interesting to companies now after the pandemic hit. And before that, I've been talking about it and writing about that and giving interviews about that for, I think, now almost three years. And people also in companies, managers were interested, it was exotic, but they did not really, yeah, they didn't really want to deal with it or be consulted in it. They always ask me, like, for example, how do I work? And I work result open. So I cannot promise them any results because that's the thing. That's the paradox because it's open. And that to them was super scary. Um, and and one of the reactions I sometimes got was, yeah, that's a very interesting topic, but we don't need it right now. We have everything under control. And this is like when I thought, yeah, But that's that's the problem. The soon, like the the minute you think, the second you think you have everything under control, you have a problem. You already have the problem. 
Uh, but this, I couldn't really transport that. Um, that only really started now um, in March, April. So that means Corona was a pusher and a booster for you and translated what you wanted to teach them. Yeah, actually, for me personally, I have to be grateful. Like, not um, very, maybe not in the beginning in an economic way, because everything, of course, also for me was cancelled. And I did not know what was going to happen. But I very soon realized that this topic now became more and more relevant. And I'm really grateful for that, not only for my sake, but... This is like something I've, I'm, I'm, I'm so deeply convinced that we need the skill in our complex world. We just need to be able to deal with uncertainty. We need to be able to grasp complexity also. Like um, most people don't really understand the difference between complicated and complex, for example. So what does it mean? And this pandemic gave this huge opportunity to um, develop a deeper understanding of how our world works away from this mechanistic thinking of cause and relation towards to a more non-linear dynamic system and this is this is organic this is life and i think we really need to have a different attitude to it a different mindset to deal with these disruptions during corona the words of ambiguity complexity volatility were far more in the media than ever And you coach managers. When, when I think about the companies I worked in, I have sometimes the, the feeling that we put a lot of pressure on managers in those times because even they also feel overwhelmed with these complex situations. They have to give trust, make other people feel secure and have a, a good communication. Can you share what people tell you, you coach, how much they are under pressure and in these uncertain times what i hear time and again is the pressure to know the answer to have answers and this is also something i'm very passionate about is fostering a culture of not knowing of being okay with saying i don't know and we don't know so much like so much that there's unknowable even and we are so obsessed with being right And this is also something that I observe very, very strongly right now in the whole discussion of Corona and how the government is dealing with it and people going to Berlin and demonstrating, et cetera, et cetera. And what I, the impression is I have that like both sides, if you could say that, they're all very obsessed with being right. Whereas I think if we could open up to each other and share that we feel uncomfortable, it makes us so uncomfortable to not know And that that's the same, that's the case on both sides. We would have like a common ground to talk about that. But instead, everybody's like trying to find scientific proof that they are right. Um, but science doesn't work like that, especially if like it's a new thing like COVID-19. It's just a new virus. We don't understand it yet so much and we have new findings every week basically and whatever you believe whatever you think you will always find proof that you're right if you just look at the look at the facts if you look at the statistics you have like you have it both ways and where i really think um, is the one way out would be also for managers to to be able to say i don't know also to let co-workers know that they are needed they need their creativity so we need like these these things you need to be able to foster creativity you also, you also need to be able to foster the conditions for emergence so your co-workers come up with solutions you know all these questions i'm asking you 
while you were talking, I was thinking, isn't this paradox as well? I want to get deeper into the topic of not knowing. So I'll ask experts like you, if you can explain it to me that I know, but this would also not be open to the concept of not knowing. I mean, what would this mean for companies and for managers that I stay open to? I don't know. That's the thing. I don't know what it would mean. That's the thing. It's really open. Um, and what, what you just talked about, yes, is the paradox. I love paradoxes because they're I not... I see. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's similar to maybe also the tolerance paradox, that tolerance means to be tolerant of everything except intolerance. And it's the thing with the unknowing. So if you realize, that's what Socrates also said, that I know that I don't know. And that's exactly the thing. So it is a paradox. The more you know, the less you know. The more you you think about stuff, the more you research stuff. And there's this this brain neuroscientist, David Eagleman, that I recently rediscovered because I really liked what he said in his interviews, <clears throat> that he is in love with being a scientist because um, science for him means time and again finding out or discovering how little we know, like the, 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 the ignorance we still have. And this is what he really likes about the science. And this is what I think is very beautiful. It's not the illusion of that we, there's ever a time where we could know everything, but there's so much we don't know. And if we don't incorporate this in our everyday life, in our management, we just constantly run against walls, run up against walls, be disappointed, make big mistakes because we think we know we think we have everything under control but we don't discovering things and staying up for not knowing when you say this i i think uh, far more about little children because they they have this discover thing in them and like you said like you described yourself like you were open and you didn't need to know so I was thinking okay what can we learn from children here and then when I think about my own life I'm like okay but as I got older I'm far more calm with things that I don't know because experience already showed me that not always a catastrophe is is, is happening what is better <laughs> being being young and more open to discover or having the experience and, and being more calm? That's a very, very interesting question. I don't think there's an either or. It's like the both, it's like both ways. So of course, by growing up, you have all these experiences and you you have this, well, in, in, in the best uh, situation, you get this confidence that things will be okay because you've experienced newness over and over again and I had this conversation with a friend yesterday whose whose son is 20 and about to move out and to go to a different city and study at university and who is super like the, the 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 son is super nervous and scared and um, we were talking about yes because that's the first time he actually has now this experience but after growing up and having had this experience a couple of times you know this is going to be uncomfortable for a while but then it's going to get better so yes on the one hand you have this experience but if you are able to still sort of keep some of the features of childhood the openness the curiosity the the, the sort of confidence in ah if I make a mistake if I fall it just get up again the the shamelessness also if you are able to keep that combined with the experience of being an adult then it's a pretty good, pretty good tool set for uncertainty, I'd say. 
And one of the things you also said before about managers, how could they be more also successful in what they're doing in uncertainty is really to realize that it's it's not even not possible to know all the answers, especially it's not possible to to go it alone. So what we also need in complexity are different perspectives. So you need your team, you need your co-workers, you need your colleagues, you need these different perspectives and really ask these questions, really foster an environment for creativity and see what, what the perspectives of the other people are. There is this big thing about job security. You know, you are self-employed, but there are a lot of people who are employed and security means for them knowing that they have still work, they still have earning. Do you think it's the duty of a company to make their employees feel safe? Mm, I would say not so much, really. I actually think it's like the everybody's responsibility to create the security and safety. The, the problem is that as soon as you give this illusion that you could give the security of course then the shit hits the fan as soon as you have like a pandemic for example because then it becomes obvious that you can never guarantee something like that what you could do yourself like as a co-worker for example as an employee is again to foster your skills to be like be prepared to um to know what you have and be aware of what you have on the plus side And not so much what is missing. So always like have this um, kind of mindset where you check out, okay, what relationships do I have? What can I do to improve them? Are there any skills I could um, improve or practice that might help me if there's ever the case that I could, I don't know, get fired, lose my job? So sort of not be in a bad way, like worried all the time. This is not this is not what I'm what I'm postulating here. It's more like play with different possibilities. And this is also what I'm very passionate about because when I think about future, for example, and we have these future think tanks, then we have a very, very narrow mindset of prediction. And we look at them, we want them to tell us what's going to happen. Just like the, the crystal ball thing. What I would suggest instead is play with the different futures that are possible and just sort of imagine what is the favorable version of, like what's the favorite version of future that would like to happen and what does it mean for you in the present? What would you have to do for this to happen? But also try to um, imagine not so favorable futures and just, just check out. So how would I be hypothetically, how would I be prepared for that? And this makes also our society much more flexible. So the pandemic, for example, wasn't very unlikely. Actually, it was very, it was very likely to happen. But we hadn't, we hadn't really played with this whole thing. We hadn't really imagined it. So this, the, the, the imagine, imagination for us people is super strong. And if we imagine things, if we anticipate things, and this is also called futures literacy, to use the future to, to use the future to um, create also our present. And if we do that, we are much more prepared. And this is also something that you can do in a company. Like you can you can play with various futures and also help coworkers, help colleagues to develop a creativity towards the future. And to be more, also more um, resilient if something unexpected happens. 
This is what I wanted to say. Isn't this a way to stay resilient? That you just play with these things. Like I play with brushing my my teeth with the other hand and I just give it a try that if I break my hand one day, I already tried it once before and it doesn't make me so insecure any, anymore, yeah? Yeah, and this is what I strongly believe in. Like, instead of promise, make, making a promise as a company that you can keep, maybe, and support your employees, support your the people in your company in becoming more like uncertainty tolerant, for example, in being more creative, in being better at improvisation. For example, improv theater is a great way to practice to be more open for various outcomes. And if you offer that, if you give them like training in that, workshops in that, it's a, if you foster a completely different culture regarding mistakes, this is all, these are all things that, that would actually help instead of giving this this... Mm, maybe false promise of keeping them safe. Or you just do what you do. You go to the, like, it's called blue water sailing. Is this correct? I, I had to Google what blue water sailing means. And what I understand is you don't drop an anchor. You just, for, for days and days, you're out in the ocean. Yeah, blue water sailing really is like um, different to coastal sailing because you can, of course, just sail along the coast and every night drop the anchor somewhere. And blue water sailing is like ocean sailing, basically. What I really like with the sailing is a different term that I think a German consultant, I'm not sure what he actually did, but it's Gunther Schmidt, and he coined the term Polynesian sailing. And I love that because the Polynesians back then they miraculously crossed Pacific, the Pacific without any instruments, without compass even. They just used intuition and they just used, like just, that's a lot actually, they used the knowledge of the world around them. They used what they, like they experience with clouds, they experience with current, they experience with, with like, the sea creatures because they sort of knew what it meant if there was a certain, um, I don't know, school of dolphins in that area. So they would read their environment and at the same time have this inner compass, this certain And this is how they arrived in all these tiny, tiny little islands in the South Pacific. And this is so, if you've ever been in a sailboat and crossed a bigger, like a bigger pond, and even maybe without navigation, tried to actually find an island in the vastness of the ocean, you get this understanding of what an achievement that was for them to find these tiny green dots in the vast blue ocean. You already crossed the, the Atlantic two times. Both times with your children? First time was with the whole family, and the second time they didn't they didn't want to come. Well, the kids didn't want to come again because they thought it was very boring, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so no no uh, great weather changes or big crises that happened there. N not many, but the, mo the, the biggest problem, I guess, was um, there was not the lack of crises, but the lack of Netflix. And the lack of internet and WhatsApp was just the reality of 21st century teenagers is that it's super important to always stay connected. The first Atlantic crossing from Cape Verde to the, to the Caribbean was actually really pretty uneventful. 
except for one thing where my boyfriend had to climb up the mast because of some little disaster. That was quite exciting, but except for that, it was very uneventful. So every day was the same. You had the sunrise, it's the sunset, you, have the, you had the shifts, everybody had a shift on board because you always have to look out. You can't, like, you don't stop at night. You have to go like 24-7. And it, it can be a little bit exhausting also because you never really sleep more than four hours at, at, at a time. And I find, I, I love this. I really love this being out in the ocean and just have this time to to think about stuff, to read books, to listen to music and to l just look at the horizon the whole day. For the kids, it was just the, the worst, the worst ever. It was just boring for them. <laughs> Would you do it alone? I don't know. I'm so in admiration of people out there like, It's called single-handed sailing. It doesn't have to do with that you just have one hand, but it's just the term that you use if a person is alone, doing it alone in a sailboat, and there are people who do um, out there doing it. I did not grow up with boats, and I get seasick. So I would uh, actually think I would not enjoy it as much because of the seasickness and also because I'm not, I'm not that a confident sailor as like for example my boyfriend is or other people are for, I don't know if you heard of the 13, 14 year old Dutch sailors back then a couple of years ago did it alone who did it yeah. like the whole world like she did a whole world circumnavigation yeah. um, just by herself I think she started when she was 13 14 something and she um, she was sort of finished when she was 16 and she that was but she grew up on boats she was born on a boat she like the first five years of her life she lived on a boat with her parents and she grew up on a shipyard and that was like she was so confident with boats And that's something I completely, I completely lack. Isn't this a metaphor that, of course, she had this trust that she could do it, this ability, but she still then went out of her comfort zone and did it alone and didn't know what happens? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is like this a, a trust and a faith that you sort of need, that everything will always continue somehow. So even even if you have like... A really crappy situation and you think this is the end and this is just so terrible you don't know how life is going to go on and it's always going to go on somehow so we come to the end of the interview and i always end this in the interview with three questions what is currently your biggest fear i think my biggest fear like globally would be that we don't use this opportunity to change things because I believe the pandemic as hard as it had been on many people is also like a very very big chance for us to understand that things work differently and if we don't use this now I'm that would be my biggest worry that we go back to how things were before and um, go back to how things were before we changed stuff this is like my biggest worry about about the world about myself personally uh i don't really have any bigger fear like of course like always to lose someone important that's one of the biggest fears because i know this could happen any time any minute you can't control it really and this is like one of the terrible most terrible things that could happen definitely This is where we want to control because we don't want these things to happen. Yeah, but you can't. 
that's the problem. What are you currently doing that you don't know how it will turn out? Oh, pretty much everything, actually. Yeah, everything. I, I really don't know how, it, how anything will turn out. So is there anything like organizing and planning in your life or is this just not working with your concept of life? I have this sort of hashtag idea without concept. So I have many ideas sort of that, I, um, that draw me into the future. So definitely I do live in the present, yes, but I have very strong like visions or ideas and that definitely involves more sailing in the future. Um, but the, the planning part and the concept is that um, if you would ask my mother, she'd, <laughs> she's always, always very upset and unhappy, I think, because it's difficult to plan with me, like to be very concrete. If she wants to know what I am doing in two weeks time, it's like, <gasps> it's just still so far away I don't know and the last question is not really a question but years ago I started to write um, quotes in a book and I will go through the pages and you will say stop and then you just comment on the quote very cool so let's start stop do you want to go left or right left bottom middle or top bottom be the energy you want to attract i guess that goes back to what you said before that when you said um if anything can happen anything can happen and you could understand that in a threatening way but then again you could also understand this as a wow everything is also possible and i guess this is quite fitting because then you attract a different energy thank you for this interview thank you for having me <laughs> If you want to support this podcast, please subscribe and share.